everyone. Welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name is Natalie, and I'm excited to introduce this week's message from our Who is Jesus series. We hope you enjoy listening and have a wonderful week of worship. All right. You guys ready to jump into a very strange Christmas series? It's not strange that it's called Who is Jesus, but we're jumping into a series called Who is Jesus, and we're going to look at three things, Okay. Today is going to be a little bit more science than it is art. I'm going to be reading from my manuscript a lot, which is not usually characteristic of my style of teaching, but today there's going to be a lot of information. So as you can tell, we handed you guys some information. We left some note pages in your seat if you don't have a journal, and I encourage you to use this because what we're talking about today I think is going to be really beneficial for all of us in the room and... uh, Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about who is Jesus. And we're going to be looking through the lens of three different worldviews. Metamodernism, Mormonism, and biblical Christianity. We're going to look at Jesus through these three things. So over the course of the next five Sundays, we'll be looking at these three different worldviews and how they're relevant to us here in Cody, Wyoming. And as we look through them, we're also going to look through these worldviews at a particular doctrinal issue, okay? And so here's the thing. It's important that you understand that me and the elders, we prayed about this, and our, I want to tell you our three chief aims in going through this. Number one, well, before let me tell you the three chief aims, how did I get here? Number one, with this whole Temple and Cody thing, anybody have heard of this? You guys would be amazed how often... I'm asked, like every single week, what's the difference between Mormonism and Christianity? Or how should I think about this? And so here's the three chief aims. First and foremost, we want to create clarity around the subject of Mormonism and Christianity. We want to create clarity. Are they the same? Are they different? How so? Second, we want to celebrate Jesus in this series. We want you to see him celebrated, and we want to celebrate him with you. As we talked about this series, there was a, we were very aware that this could create a us versus them feeling. You see that? So following Paul's guidance in Ephesians 4.15, which says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we want all of you, and of course, we want the whole community to grow up in the image of Christ. And so we're going to do that by speaking the truth. But I'm going to do that with love. <laughs> Lastly, um, our third aim is that we want to, you to leave feeling thankful for Jesus, thankful for the Bible, and thankful for the gospel. So if after today you leave with clarity, feeling Jesus was celebrated, and feeling thankful for God and the gospel, I did my job. And if not, well, I did my best. Okay? So today I'm going to be doing double duty. I'm going to be, uh, take a little time to introduce the first two worldviews to you, because I think that you probably know least about those two if you showed up to this Baptist church looking place, okay? And uh, we're going to look at them, and today the, the doctrine or the focus is on how do these worldviews view the Bible, all right? So here's kind of the basic outline right here. You guys will see this on the screen. Uh, we are going to look at metamodernism. Maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't. What is it? And how does it impact people's view of the Bible? We're going to look at Mormonism. What is it? Where did the Book of Mormon come from? 
how do they view the Bible. Then we're going to look at biblical Christianity. Some of uh, this uh, you guys know quite well. How did we get the Bible? Can the Bible be trusted as a resource for understanding God, the gospel? Is it historically accurate? We're going to talk about it today. And then we're going to end with some takeaways where we're just going to review the clarity and we're just going to talk about some things we should be thankful for. Does that sound good? All right, let's go. Metamodernism. Try saying that. All right. Okay, what is it? Well, before I tell you what the definition of metamodernism, I have to give you a brief history of modernism and postmodernism. You probably heard it the second. Now, all three of these uh, worldviews, these intellectual movements, they describe how people interact with pre-existing structures. Now, that's a weird way to say that, so I'm going to call them big stories. Everybody say big stories. What's a big story? Well, a big story, it, it refers to grand narratives uh, that help us by, uh, help show how the world came to be, how it works, how it's formed, how it's going to end. It's a comprehensive and all-encompassing framework that attempts to make sense of human existence, society, history, like Mormonism and Christianity. Those are big stories. Now, modernism is not so modern. Modernism happened in the 1890s to 1940s, okay? And modernists sought to challenge uh, all the pre-existing big stories. They wanted to break out and either try new ones or make their own stories, okay? So they, this is what they did. And so what's really interesting, if you look at church history, between the 1890s and 1940s, there's a lot of denominations that were created or broke off. Has anybody ever heard of Pentecostalism? Anybody, anybody have any experience with Pentecostalism? If you did, you were the best worshipers in the room, man. You're just like, let's do this. Okay? Um, if you don't know what that's about, you have no idea why I just did that, but you and, you and I know. Uh, also, at the same time of Pentecostalism, there was a break into the uh, formation of conservative fundamentalist denominations and independent churches. Anybody have some experience with those? And they didn't speak up very loud because they're not supposed to talk in church. They know that. The holiness movement, which is the Church of the Nazarene, Foursquare, Christian Missionary Alliance, those were formed around this time. Christian Science came around, Seventh-day Adventists, and the Latter-day Saints experienced a split between the 1890s and 1940s during the modernist movement, between the LDS and the FLDS, which is the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints movement. So it was a time of breaking into new things. After the modernists, we get the postmodernists. Anybody ever heard of this? Postmodernists is more of the mid-20th century. And I don't know if it was because of the atrocities of World War II and that, how that really affected the way everybody saw everything. Or it was the fact that postmodernists saw their parents break away from pre-existing structures, big stories, to go form their own and saw that those didn't do what they thought they were going to do. That they're, you know what, everything is wrong. And so for a postmodernist, the idea is, well, either truth is just relative or truth doesn't really exist. That's kind of really depressing. And they are. Postmodernists are very depressing. And then we get metamodernism. Metamodernism is right now. Most of you in this room, whether you know it or not, are operating as a metamodernist. It's a movement. And so what is metamodernism? Metamodernists appreciate pre-existing structures. In fact, in fact, metamodernists value authentic and sincere engagement with big stories that carry meaning 
for life, like the Bible. So they don't just want to break away. They believe things like the Bible or Islam or Mormonism or uh, music or whatever. All these things, they have meaning, and so they value them. And in fact, they value really meaningful engagement, sincere engagement with those stories. But this engagement has limits. It's got limits. They're like the modernists and that they like new things, but they're like the postmodernists where they go, yeah, but I'm not going to let it have authority over me. You track what I'm saying? So what happens is when they come to the Bible, the Bible is a narrative. It, as a narrative, it is a big story. It articulates the beginning, the middle, the end of the world. It articulates what good and evil are and the outcomes of both in society and beyond. It tells us not just what happened, but who made it happen. And to the Christian, it is more than just a story. It is a truth claim, right? So I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of a setup for the metamodernism. It's a truth claim. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 17, he prays to the Father. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. For the Christian, the Bible is not just a big story. It is truth. Now, how do the metamodernists view the Bible? Here's how a metamodernist, a person who appreciates big stories and searching and pulling out. If you were to ask a metamodernist, how they view the Bible, they would say that they appreciate the Bible. They're, they're like, yeah, it's, it's great. You know, I appreciate the Bible. It's got a lot of rich history in it. It's, it I, I really appreciate the cultural influence it's brought about for the West. You know, I think that it holds a lot of literary significance. But then they would say, but, you know, it's got so many different interpretations. Like, who's to say what these guys are saying is right versus what those guys are saying? And so because of that, it's got a, a little bit of a limit for them. So they would appreciate the Bible for the way that it adds meaning and purpose and goodness to the world, but they would reject any appeal of the Bible or any Christian to it being the truth. They love what it says about loving their neighbor, practicing the Sabbath rest. They're like, I'm down for that, add it to my life. And they're willing to add these parts of the story, but they reject what it says about sin and submitting to Jesus as king over their life. Let me give you an image that I think will really help you understand. Okay, so biblical Christians, here we go. A biblical Christian uh, will come to the Bible story, and the Bible story takes precedence over their story. The Bible story takes precedence over their story. In other words, when they come to the Bible, they're looking to discover the truth that already exists, and to find out where their story fits in God's story. You see this? This is how a Christian approaches the Bible. Now, a metamodernist approaches it differently. A metamodernist says their story is the most important story. And so they come to the Bible or they come to other big stories looking to take pieces of those stories and add it into their own story. You see what I'm saying? So Jake Williams said this really well when he and I were talking about this. When a Christian comes to the Bible, we know that there's this big biblical story that God is doing. And when we come into that story, we're looking to where we fit in it. And when we fit ourselves in it, it's still the Bible story. It's still God's story. But when a metamodernist or any of us come and we go, well, I am a story. And I'm going to come and I'm going to pull a little bit of the Bible on a Sunday morning. I'm going to pull a little bit of Joe Rogan's podcast on my drive to work, I'm going to pull a little bit of, you know, my dad's 
philosophies or whatever. I'm going to pull all these things into my story. And Jake said, ultimately, it's still just your story. It's still just about you. And we all have a tendency to do this. And so listen, to a metamodernist, all big stories like the Bible and Mormonism and, uh, you know, Islam and Hindu and whatever, they're just like really large podcasts that they can listen to and take whatever they want as they go into their work. Now, it's really important that you understand that in yourself, but it's also really important, guys, that we understand this for our friends. Because most of the people you're interacting with, there's an advantage in this. And there's some disadvantages, and it's good that you understand it. We're going to circle back at the end to talk about that. Now we're going to switch to Mormonism, which I think some of you are probably overly excited and some of you are really nervous. All right, we're going to switch to that. But as we switch, I want to do something real quick. I want you to think. I want to pose a question to you. Are there metamodernistic attributes at the, uh, at the beginning of the Mormon story? Do we see metamodernistic uh, descriptions or descriptors in Joseph Smith at the beginning of the story? I'm going to show you. I think that the answer is yes. So let's go into Mormonism. Some of you, you moved here from California. you got no context of Mormonism, right? Some of you, you're from Utah. You fully understand it in a way that I don't understand it. But I spent the last two weeks, uh, probably 30 hours, just reading about it. And so today, I'm going to read through these things. And as I go through these things, I want to read to you things, uh, facts and bullets, okay? So I'm not reading this with an emotional um, hatred or anything like that. Do you guys hear me? So as we go through this, I'm just going to read them as they are, plainly. So Mormonism is a religious movement that pulls heavily from biblical Christianity. By definition, Mormonism is a cult religion. Okay, a cult religion refers to a religious group that differs significantly in one or more respects from those religious groups which are regarded as the normative expressions of religion in our total culture. Okay, take a second. Is that on the screen? Okay, good. Gives you a chance to read it for yourself. In addition to this, a cult might also be defined, it's not Greg's definition, as a group of people gathered about a specific person or person's misinterpretation of the Bible. Okay? For example, Jehovah's Witnesses are, for the most part, followers of the interpretations of Charles T. Russell and J.F. Rutherford. The Christian scientist today is a disciple of Mary Baker Eddy and her inter interpretations of Scripture. And Mormons, by their own admission adhere to the interpretations found in the writings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Does that sound, you guys get it, you, you with me? All right, good, let's keep going. Now, how, listen, a Mormon would probably disagree with me. How do Mormons view themselves? Good question, thank you for asking. Mormons have always held to the position that they alone represent true Christianity. Here are some quotes. Mormon apostle Bruce R. McConkie wrote, Mormonism is Christianity. Christianity is Mormonism. Mormons are true Christians. In 1995, Mormon apostle Dalen Oaks stated that the difference between other Christians, that would refer to us, other Christian churches, and the LDS church explain why we send missionaries to other Christians. 
Do you understand what he means by that? So Mormons believe themselves to be Christian, and from the very top, most of the Mormons you talk to are not going to say that, but Mormons believe themselves to be Christian, but from the very top, they believe that they are the only Christians in the world. Now, what about the Book of Mormon? Okay, Joseph Smith uh, once said that the Book of Mormon is, Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon. He said that it is the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. That includes the Bible. So what is the Book of Mormon about? I'm guessing that most of you have not read the Book of Mormon, okay? The Book of Mormon is allegedly a, an abridged account of God's dealing with the original inhabitants of the American continent from the year uh, uh, 2247 B.C. to A.D. 421. Mormons claim it was originally engraved on golden plates and by ancient prophets in a language of Reformed Egyptian or Reformed hieroglyphics, and it was deposited in a stone box and buried in Hill Cumorah in New York. It is said to be God's uncorrupted revelation to humankind, the fullness of the everlasting gospel, and, quote, another testament of Jesus Christ, end quote. Smith said to, uh, is said to have translated the book of Mormon uh, from the golden plates using the seer stone. Now, uh, there's going to be differing opinions on this, but history shows that the def- it was, he used a senior stone rather than giant stone spectacles. Okay? Now, following the translation of the Book of Mormon, Smith said that he heard a voice from out of a bright light above him that said, and this is important that you hear this. He said that he heard this voice. This is recorded in Pearl of Great Price, which is another book that the Mormons read. Uh, and, and so in the Pearl of Great Price, in the section called History, Chapter 1, verse 54 through 55, it says this. These plates have been revealed by the power of God, and they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them, which you have seen, is correct, and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. Okay, what have we said so far? I know it gets kind of boring when I'm just sitting here reading, but I think it's helpful for me to speak as clear as possible. So let's review real quick. Number one, Mormons view themselves as true Christians. Mormons believe the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth. This book is supposedly an account of God's dealings with the original inhabitants of the American continent and Jesus' work with them. And number four, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from golden plates by means of a seer stone. You guys with me? All right, tracking. Here we go. Is there sufficient evidence to believe this? It's a good question. Got to ask it. Or are there reasons to doubt the works of Joseph Smith? I did a lot of research on this, and I tried to find the answer to this. I've been told that by Mormons or people who used to be Mormon that they felt a sense or that there was a rule that they were not allowed to ask questions in the Mormon church. I did not find anything to validate that. I don't know if that's just personal experience. But I want to show you, and if any Mormons listen to this message, that biblically, you are absolutely invited to question. Okay? Did you know that, Christians? You are absolutely allowed to question. Students, you are allowed to doubt and question. You should. And if you're not allowed to question, you're not allowed to doubt, you should run away from Christianity. 
because it's hiding something from you. But the beauty about Christianity is you can ask whatever you want. So let's go. Number one, 1 John 4, 1 tells all of us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do we test it? Somebody? With the word of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 18. This is really important. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in the name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has, uh, has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So, as you can tell, the claim that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book of any book, a new revelation of Jesus Christ, translated by the power of God, is a dangerous claim if it turns out to be false. Joseph Smith, if wrong, is liable to a very serious judgment for his misleading of Mormons today and the world. So let's start by looking at the Book of Mormon. Where did the Book of Mormon come from? Again, another great question. You guys are asking great questions. Okay. Um, remember what I said, that metamodernism, uh, I think you could see a bit of metamodernism in the beginning with Joseph Smith. Let me give you an image. Uh, this image on the screen is going to show you what I mean by that. Joseph Smith, I believe, and I'm going to kind of show you this, okay, uh, and I'm going to be able to show you everything that I read because I'm literally only talking about 2% of what I actually read in the last two weeks. I believe that Joseph Smith was, in a sense, a metamodernist. He pulled from different aspects of his life to pull together to bring something uh, that he eventually called a truth claim. He pulled from his family of origin. He pulled from literary fiction that was existed in his day around him as well as from the King James Bible. I believe he pulled from these. Let's go into one at a time. Let's look at family origin. Could you leave that on the screen, though? Uh, Josh, thank you. Appreciate that. So family origin. There is little doubt. History proves that Joseph Smith Jr., he's a junior, grew up in a home that practiced magic and divination through peep stones or, uh, and using divining rods and other things to find treasures in the hills of Vermont and the hills of New York, okay? Um, his father, Joseph Smith Sr., was obsessed, and that obsession, see, that obsession seems to have been passed down to Joseph Smith Jr., and the evidence is devastatingly uh, sufficient. For example, his mom wrote a book called The History of Joseph Smith about her son, and in there, she says that is what he did, and he, there is a court case where he was tried and convicted of using, practicing divination uh, where he was at. So there's more information than that, but one, because he grew up in a family where this was a common practice in the family, okay? Now two, let's move on to literary fiction. This one is a little bit more um, clear. You may know that the Book of Mormon tells the story of American Indians. Did you know that? Um, that they are the descendants of Israel that sailed to the Americas thousands of years ago, that they developed the land and grew into a large nation 
that eventually divided in a civil war between the sophisticated group, which are called the Nephites, and the unsophisticated group, which are called the Lamanites, who are, uh, what the Mormons would say, are the ancestors of the modern Indians, uh, American Indians. The Lamanites won the war, though uh, a prophet named Moroni, son of Mormon, uh, was able to write down or collect the history of that civilization, and he wrote them down on those golden parade plates, put them in a box, buried them in a hill, and later Joseph Smith found those and by the power of God translated them. Now, I, I would say to you guys, does that sound like a very, and, and this is not a, I'm not saying this in a, in a negative way, does that sound like a very unique story to you? Like probably nowhere else in the world is anybody telling that story. I go, yes, I, I would say that's a very uh, amazing, unique story. It's really incredible. And uh, you would think that, and one would assume, that a story that unique would be only characteristic of the Mormon story and that there would be no other story like it in the world. Would you agree? There would be nothing else like that. But that's actually not true. And I want to show you that the Book of Mormon is a fictional plagiarism. Mormon historian B.H. Roberts, this is a Mormon who was tasked by the Mormon Church and the Apostles in the 70s to write a Mormon history to investigate these claims. And so B.H. Roberts, Mormon historian, wrote this. It is often represented by Mormon speakers and writers that the Book of Mormon was the first to represent the American Indians as descendants of the Hebrews, holding that the Book of Mormon is unique in this. The claims, the claim is sometimes still ignorantly made. Let me give you an example. He lists these. These are six books. You can go to this next slide. There are six books that claim that the Indians, right, the Native Americans, are descendants of the Hebrews. Six books came in 1830. If I'm standing in your way, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm a big, giant mess in your way. But in 1830 is when the Book of Mormon is written, and the rest of these all tell stories of how Israel came to become the Native Americans that we know today. So these stories already existed. Now, I want to hone in on one specific one. It's in bold right there. It's called View of the Hebrews, and it's written by Ethan Smith. He's not related to Joseph Smith, but Ethan Smith wrote View of the Hebrews. And it's really important that we focus in on this one, because this book... Um, has a really interesting connection to Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith scribes. So let me set a little more context because I forgot to do this. The story is Joseph Smith was sitting behind a curtain or behind a wall or something was happening, and he was interpreting the golden plates. And what he would do is he would say what he was saying to a guy on the other side whose name was, is it Oliver Cowdery? Yes, Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver Cowdery was on this side, and he would transcribe what Joseph Smith said. Okay. Joseph Cowdery is from the same town as Ethan Smith, who wrote a fictional book called View of the Hebrews. The question is, was he ever there at the same time as Ethan Smith? Yes. Oliver Cowdery's family attended Ethan Smith's church. Listen, if I write a fictional book, you will all know about it because I will need your help buying it, okay? I will tell every single one of you. So Ethan Smith wrote View of the Hebrews, this fictional story about how the Native Americans are actually derived from the Hebrews. And there's all this information we're going to go into in a second. 
And Oliver, Oliver Cowdery is from that same town. His family went to the same church as Ethan Smith. And that book came out seven years before the Book of Mormon. And where the Book of Mormon was written and where a few of the Hebrews written are one county apart. If you got in a car and drove from where Joseph Smith was to where Ethan Smith was, it would be a one-hour drive. Okay, I'm just setting a little context here. Now, the question is, are there any parallels or similarities between view of the Hebrews and the Book of Mormon? All right, let me show you a few, okay? You can go to this page. Um, view of the Hebrews, first edition was written in 1823, second in 1825, Book of Mormon, first edition, 1830. Here are some of the parallels. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these to you. Destruction of Jerusalem, the talk, this is what this, they both talk about. So these are where both of them are saying, talking about a similar thing. They both talk about destruction of Jerusalem, the scattering of Israel, the restoration of the ten tribes. Hebrews leave the old world for the new world. Religion motivating factor, migration a long journey, encounter seas of, quote, many waters. The Americas uh, were in an uninhabited land. Settlers journey northward, encounter a valley of, of a great river. Unity of race, which is Hebrew, settle the land and are the ancestral origin of the American Indians. Hebrew, uh, the origin of Indian language. Egyptian hieroglyphics, they both talk about it. Lost Indian records set in, in view of the Hebrews. The records are written on yellow leaves. In the Book of Mormon, they're written, written on golden plates. Don't go to the next slide yet. Well, you did. All right, it's great. <laughs> it's all right. You, you, didn't, you didn't know. That's on me. I was going to say, that's quite a bit, right? And you think that's it, but I got another page. Let's keep going. You, you still get it, okay? I, both of them uh, talk about uh, breastplate. Uh, Urim and Thummim, prophets, spiritually gifted men transmit generational records. The gospel preached in the Americas, uh, quotes whole chapters of Isaiah. Sorry, they're missing the cue. Messiah, uh, Messiah visits the Americas. Good and bad are a necessary opposition. Generosity and courage and pride denounced. Polygamy denounced. Idolatry and human sacrifice. Sacred towers and high places. Hebrews divide into two. Uh, into sorry, I can't spell apparently. Uh, two classes, civilized and barbarous. Civilized thrive in art, written language, metal, metallurgy, and navigation. Government changes from a monarchy to a republic. Civil and, and ecclesiastical power is united in the same person. Long wars break out between civilized and barbarous. Extensive military fortifications, observations, uh, and watchtowers. The barbarous exterminate the civilized and both discuss the United States. B.H. Roberts, who wrote Studies of the Book of Mormon, a Mormon himself, said, did Ethan Smith view, uh, did Smith's view of the Hebrews furnish structural material for Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon? It's a good question. Listen to what he says. It has been pointed out in these pages that there are many things in the former book, View of Hebrews, that might well have suggested many major things in the other. Not a few things merely, one or two or a half dozen, but many. And it is this fact of many things of similarity in the cumulative force of them that makes them so serious a menace to Joseph Smith's story of the Book of Mormon's origin. Okay? We're going to leave it at that. This book, we imagine, has to imagine, that it's a great challenge. Let's move on to the biblical connections. 
Okay, we know that Joseph Smith was acquainted with the Bible, and especially the King James Version, because that was the most popular Bible of the time in the 1830s. Okay, and the most obvious way we could see that it influenced him was how often he plagiarized the scripture directly from the King James into the Book of Mormon. Now, the question or the challenge that might be raised by you or others is, um, how is it a plagiarism for him to say, if this is scripture and he's, and he's taking this scripture, that, you know, didn't Jesus and Paul and Peter and John, didn't they quote Old Testament scriptures? Yes, they absolutely did. But they quoted them. They did not take them as their own. Do you understand the difference? Now, what's even stranger about this, and there are so many things I could say about this, but guys, I'm going to keep it really simple. What's stranger about this is the fact that the scripture that is plagiarized is the King, from the King James Version, which was written in 1611. Joseph Smith lives in 1830, or 1828 when he first starts this, okay? The plates, the golden plates, were allegedly written on and inscribed in 421 AD. I don't know if you've ever read the King James Version. Anybody in here read the King James Version? It is written in Elizabethan English. So if it's translated by the power of God and the will of God, why is it that the golden plates are translated in Elizabethan English rather than into English that is characteristic of the 1830s? The reason is he's pulling from the King James Bible. That's the challenge. Now, before we move on to address some other uh, challenges the Book of Mormon presents, I want to circle back. And after looking at the family of origin, the fictional literature, and the connection of the KJV, it seems apparent that Joseph Smith did what many of us do today. He took aspects from different parts of a life and pulled them together to build his own story. The only difference is between you and Joseph Smith is that he made a truth claim out of Mormonism stating that it is the truth that must be believed and that the Book of Mormon is the truest book that's ever existed. Let me hit you with a few more fast facts. Number one, the Book of Mormon is documented to have 4,000 changes. The modern Book of Mormon has undergone 4,000 changes since 1830. In fact, if you have an 1830 Book of Mormon uh, and you hold that up next to a modern Book of Mormon, it will feel very different. Number two, the Book of Mormon tells of massive civilizations that possessed elephants, horses, and steel. And this is prior to the Columbian era. No archaeological evidence has ever been discovered to validate this claim. Number three, no linguistical evidence has ever revealed that the Native American languages today are derived from the ancient Hebrew. And no evidence validates the claim of the book of being written in reformed hieroglyphics. Uh, and number four, no DNA evidence validates that the Native Americans are related to Hebrews. Rather, they're related to the Mongols. Okay? These are fast facts. If you would like more evidence, I'm thinking about putting some of these things on our website so you can go and access and read it for yourself. Because at the end of the day, you and our Mormon friends have to decide for yourselves. Okay? You've got to go do the research yourself. How do you know that I'm not lying to you? 
go and look it up and research it. And I would encourage every Mormon to go and look into this, this historical evidence. I would encourage you guys to do the same. You've got to make the decision. Is this the true faith or are there, is the evidence too much to ignore and is this just a metamodernistic rendition of Christianity? Okay? Now I want to turn to the Bible. I love this part. It's my favorite part. Uh, my assumption, guys, listen, I know I'm moving through this, and I'm, I told you, that's why you need a note sheet, you need to take this down. Hopefully this gets recorded, and you guys can go back and listen to it if you want, or you could send it to others if you want. Um, if you want to email me, you can, uh, it's uh, jwilliams at outpostcommunity.org, um, and uh, we would be glad to get back to you. Um, I may one day do a full course on this where I could show you more details, but over the next five weeks, we're going to go through this. Now, listen, why are we doing this? Because the rest of what we're going to talk about in the Christmas season it has to come from the, like, you gotta, under, you gotta ask the question, where am I getting my information from? We're starting here with this because where we get all of our information from in the church is the what? Bible. The Bible. And so we gotta ask ourselves, can we be clear, is the Bible something that we can actually trust? And where are the Mormons who are, they love Christmas just like us. They love nativity. They love Jesus. They're going to tell you that. But where are they getting their information from? So that's where we start. we got to start where, where we get our information from. Now, my question is, is the Bible true? What's your answer? Of course you'd say that, Christians. Okay? Well, my answer would be yes, too. And listen, here we go. This, is, uh, this could be said to be subjective. The major premise is, as a Christian, the major premise that the Bible is true is that we believe that God is true. Go read Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 4. The minor premise is this. If God is true, the Bible is God's word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the conclusion is the Bible is true. Because if God is true, everything he says is true, and therefore the Bible is true. The words of the Bible are written. Now, the next thing you need to know is the Bible is written by men under the sovereignty of God. How do we know that? Verse, 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let me get you, hit you with some fast facts on the Bible. That sheet that we handed out to you guys is a gift to you. It's also got a lot more things that I'm not going to cover, but here's some fast facts that you'll find on that page. Your Bible, this beautiful, wonderful, amazing book right here, is made up of 66 smaller books. 66 books written by 40-plus authors in three different languages on three different continents over 1,500 years, and they all tell one unified story. It's amazing. If you have not read it, uh, I'm going to encourage you to read it. In biblical Christianity, we call this one unified story, and inerrant work. What does that mean? Well, an inerrant work basically means it's without error. Okay? Uh, but the technical definition, again, I didn't write this. You guys know me. My head is full of like Crayola crowns. Um, where I come from, they call them crowns. It's just the way it is. Okay? Shows more of the red neckery that exists within me. Here's the technical definition. The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm Anything that is contrary to fact, I would add, it, uh, it does not even contradict itself. Okay? I challenge you to go and discover that. Okay, but how do we know that the version that we have is the same as the original manuscripts? That's the question, right? How do we know? 
The challenge of metamodernists and of Mormonism is how can we trust this Bible? So when I was in college, I had a professor, an English professor, and he told me, and when I was trying to share the gospel with him when I was in college, and he said, ah, I can't trust the Bible. It was just written, literally, he said this to me. It, uh, it was just written by a bunch of drunk scribes who just stayed up in the night, changing it to whatever they wanted it to be. This guy has a master's degree in literature. Okay, he wrote that. This is where I'm getting a little, I'll get hot and bothered against from professors because he's not going to listen to this. Um, Mormons, and this is from Mormon missionaries. Mormon missionaries are trained to use something called the telephone game. Have you guys ever heard of the telephone game? Okay, telephone game is basically this. If I took about 60 of you and we lined up right here and I told the first person this long paragraph and I said, all right, I want you to tell the next person and then they tell the next person. By the time we get to the back of the room and Ashley hears about it back there, she's going to tell me something that's not what I said. That's the telephone game. And that's what Mormonism, Mormons will do to communicate why you cannot fully trust the Bible. In fact, the Mormon phrase is this, the Bible is good so long as it's translated correctly. What that does is it puts the Bible on a shaky foundation from the get-go. And that's the reason why many Mormons don't read the Bible and why metamodernists don't read the Bible. Is they go, how can I trust the translation? Was it scribes passing it down being changed over time? Has anybody ever heard that argument? It is an absurd, uh, it is an absurdly untrue. And I want to prove to you the Bible actually can be trusted as a historical document that represents what the original manuscripts said. So can you trust the Bible? Let me hit you with a few fast facts, all right? Let's do a little comparison. Anybody ever heard of Plato? And I don't mean the squishy stuff that your kids get all of your floor. Plato, the philosopher. Plato, of Plato's writings, we have seven known manuscripts. And the earliest copy dates to 1,200 to 1,300 years after the original. You guys have heard of Aristotle, another great philosopher. We have 49 known manuscripts with the earliest copy 1,500 years after the original. You guys have heard of Homer. You probably haven't, but you've heard of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Of, the, uh, of Homer's writings, we have 643 known manuscripts with the earliest copy uh, coming in at 500 years after the original. That is number two in the world for ancient writings. Homer's. Number two. Guess what's number one? The New Testament has five. Is it on the screen? Oh, you guys. Cheaters. 5,700 full manuscripts of New Testament texts. If you add in partial, we get up to 22,000 uh, documented texts with the earliest copy being dated at 125 A.D., which counts as being within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Is that not crazy? 5,700 manuscripts, and with that, we could be 99% certain that what we have matches the original writings. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Uh, one of you may know this, and you may say to me, well, hold on. There are 200,000 mistakes or variations in those manuscripts. And I would be obligated to say to you, you are right. There are 200,000. Uh, but none of these 200,000 deviations or differentiations changes the meaning or doctrine of the text. They are merely, merely listen, of these 200,000, misspellings, uh, grammatical errors, switching Jesus Christ for Christ Jesus, 
words going off the edge of a page, okay, majority of them are those. Also, when a second century scribe would write down one scroll, and that scroll was used by third century scribes, and they made a hundred more manuscripts, that created, and if that second century guy made one mistake, that mistake would be passed on to these next hundred. You get it? So we had one mistake that now is being documented as 101 mistakes. If you put all the facts on the table, there are only 40 uh, of the variants, 40 of the variants that have real significant changes. And even then, no doctrine or Christian faith, of the Christian faith or any moral commandment is affected. That's a pretty accurate transcription. Now, maybe that's not good enough for you, and I get that. If you were to take all of the quotations from the early church fathers where they were quoting the New Testament writers, you would find that there are 86,000 quotations by early church fathers. If you were to take, listen to this, y'all. This makes me giggle a little bit. If you were to take all 86,000 quotations, you could put together the entire New Testament minus 11 verses. So if you take the 5,700 manuscripts and the 86,000 quotations of those manuscripts by the early fathers, you're going to get a pretty accurate uh, uh, depiction of what the first writers were saying. So can you trust your New Testament? The answer is unequivocally, categorically, yes. Now what about the Old Testament? The oldest document we had of the Old Testament was in, came in at 900 A.D. And it was the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah it was in a 900 A.D. That's a long time after the Old Testament, right? So the argument, uh, that was prior to 1947. So prior to 1947, the argument also was, well, they just changed it over time. And so how can we trust what we have from 900 A.D.? Well, eventually there was a goat herdsman or sheep herdsman, a little boy, who was throwing some rocks in a cave uh, in a place called the Dead Sea. You guys heard of this? And he threw some rock. And he, as the rock went into the cave, I've seen the cave. Uh, it hit a clay pot. He heard the clay break, so they climbed up into this cave, and they found in there lots of clay pots filled with leather manuscripts, some paper, some papyrus, some leather. And in there, believe it or not, was a full, you, you have to believe it, it's actually historically accurate, documented not just by Christians but by historians, um, a full manuscript of Isaiah. So they took this scroll of Isaiah, once everyone realized how crazy awesome that was, they dated it, came in at 200 B.C., okay? So it's a roughly 1,000 years from the Dead Sea Isaiah to the uh, 900 A.D. Isaiah, and they put them on a table and all the world held their breath because we're about to find out how good is the transcription. And guess what? It's an exact match. A 1,000-year gap, and we have an exact match from one Isaiah to another. And all the church said, thank God. Amen. Amen. A thousand years of description. Now, the next question I've got to answer is this. Can the Bible be trusted as a reliable historical work? Can it be relied as a, a reliable historical work? Now, I invite you, we, we had to cancel, not cancel, uh, push back our trip to Israel that was going to be this coming March. It's now going to be pushed to 2025, looks like June. And I invite all of you to come with me to Israel. It is absolutely amazing. If you come with me to Israel, you're going to be able to sit, open your Bible, read it, and look at exactly the place that you're reading. Like, it's weird. 
like sitting on the Sea of Galilee, and like, this is where they did this thing, man, right? The storm happened here. Jesus walked here. It's amazing. You can open your Bible. Donald J. Wiseman notes that the most of the 25,000 sites of the Bible have been located. Isn't that crazy? Archaeological evidence has proved it. Nelson Gluck, a specialist in ancient literature, did an exhaustive study and concluded, quote, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted the biblical reference. Ever. Well-known scholar William F. Albright, maybe you've heard of him, I think it's the Albright Scholarship uh, guy, following a comprehensive study, wrote, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition of the value of the Bible as a source of history. Here's my final point on the Bible. Whether you believe it was inspired by God, filled with eternal truth, and worthy of your submission to is entirely up to you. But whether it is an historically accurate, well-transcribed documentation of Judeo-Christian worldview is not up to you. The facts are in. It is. So this gets us to our takeaways, and here's where we'll wrap this up. Here, let's bring some clarity. Let's start with some clarity. What have we talked about this morning, guys? Maybe you took notes. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're asleep. Maybe you're not. Metamodernists appreciate the biblical worldview for what it can potentially add to their story. But that doesn't mean that they believe it to be the truth. And this differs from biblical Christianity in that Christians believe that, listen, 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hey, the number one thing changing people's lives at Alpha's Community Church is not Greg Brooks's teachings or our student ministry or community. The number one thing changing people's lives is they're reading the Bible. That's the number one story I hear. So it's important to ask yourself, listen, am I, ask yourself this, write this down. When you go to bed tonight, just take a minute, 60 seconds to review this question. Am I approaching the Bible for how it could benefit my story? Or am I coming to the Bible to see where I fit in God's story? Church, I encourage you to ask yourself that question. You will reap amazing reward if you answer it appropriately. Mormonism began as a meta-modernistic uh, movement. Its founder, Joseph Smith, pulled from different aspects of his life to form a new way of looking at Christianity. He did this by adding to the Bible and by reinterpreting or changing it, as well as putting the Bible on shaky ground by saying that it is, the, it is only true if it interpreted correctly. Current Mormons, therefore, doubt the Bible due to the belief that it has been poorly transcribed. It is important to understand that many of our Mormon friends do not know. They are unaware of the evidence for a trustworthy transcription of the Bible, as well as the Book of Mormon, which care, uh, uh, they're unaware that the Book of Mormon has been changed 4,000 times. So what do you do with them? Do you show up at your next meeting and go, hey, stop doing that. Don't you know? My encouragement to you, Christians, is that you first ask yourself, how have I made assumptions 
about what the Bible says without reading it myself. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, things should be this way, or we should do that, or that's not right, or this is wrong. And the question I ask is like, well, what's the Bible say about that? And they have no idea. Many of you guys are operating under Christian assumptions that are assumptions. They're more tradition than they are Bible. What does the Bible actually have to say about the way you live your life? Do you know? Guess what? You can know, man. And you don't have to know it perfectly. I don't. I often forget it. But the reality is if you go to read it, you can find out what it actually says about what we're supposed to be doing here. And hey, listen, I'll be held accountable to you, which is awesome because you read your Bible. So first thing we need to ask ourselves, are we doing the same thing? Are we just coming to this thing kind of assuming the Bible says one thing, but we're not actually reading it? Now, once you've done that and you've just done a good looking in the mirror before you looked out the window at everybody else's problems in your neighborhood, then here's my encouragement, friends. Graciously invite your Mormon friends to come with you to investigate the facts about the Bible. Invite them to come with you to investigate Joseph Smith's creation of the Book of Mormon. And as you do it, do it with open hands and do it with love. Look for truth. Don't get emotional about it. Just put the facts on the table and say, let's just talk about it together. I care about you. You understand? Okay. A point of clarity. Well, we'll get to it in this series. It's going to be so good, y'all. I hope you come back. If you don't, well, hey, listen, like I said, I did the best I could. Let's talk about what we should be. Let's close with this. Do we have reasons to be thankful this morning? Good night. Yes, we do. I think understanding how the Bible made it to our laps this morning is something to be incredibly thankful for. Incredibly thankful for. Not to mention that God would even give us his word. That's awesome. Telling us how the world works and what we should do. I mean, this is great that he is our God. I mean, how many of you guys are thankful for John 3.16? Anybody? Man, what about Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How about Romans 5.1? Anybody know that one? Man, I've been justified by faith. Therefore, I have peace with God. That's a good verse to know. How about Romans 8.1? Anybody encouraged by Romans 8.1? What does that say? There is therefore no... For those who are in Christ Jesus, for... Oh, I, I could keep on going. I mean, it tells us so many good things. It is amazing. Listen, thousands of men and women, thousands of men and women worked their butts off to pass on the Bible that we have. And some of them uh, transcribing copies. Uh, so many people have gone before us to translate the Bible into English. You've never lived in a world where the Bible is not something that you could read, like where you have it in English. In the 1500s, men and women could not read it in England in English until a guy named William Tyndall came along and he translated, the audacity to translate it into English. They burned him at the stake for doing so. You and I have no stinking clue what a gift it is to have this Bible. And what a gift it is that those scribes, man, worked hard to make sure they wrote down exactly what the previous scroll said. That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it, church? He did it with what? With a word. What could happen in your life 
If the God who creates a world through his word, what would happen if you took his word into your life? What could God create in you? I want to invite you to consider that he could create a world of change and life and goodness in you. I promise. I invite you. As a person who's reading the Bible and finding life, I invite you to come and join me, man. Do it. Friends, as we head into the Christmas season, which is awesome, and this is such a great season, Natalie did a great job on this wrapping. I give that wrapping over there a 9.5. Okay? Good job. Tree, that tree's a 10, right? Can I get a 10? No Russian judges in here, right? Christmas season is a wonderful season. Maybe you are reading your Bible. Maybe you're not. I want to invite you to do what some of my really good friends in my community, the Ellsbury's, are doing. They're reading through, and I'm now putting them on the spot, so now they have to do it. You guys should ask them next Sunday, how's it going? Uh, they are reading the, 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 the Gospel of Luke one chapter at a time from December 1st all the way to December 24th. And so uh, I would invite you to join them. If you're not reading somewhere, go a chapter at a time with your family, reading through the Gospel of Luke and getting up on the history, okay? And uh, jump in. Maybe you're reading somewhere in the Bible. Awesome. Good job. Keep it up, man. Because in this book, there is life. Okay. Till next week, let's stand up and worship and celebrate the Lord. <laughs>